Awesome. I got the most likes of everything I've ever posted in my whole life. Even better than my big fish pictures and stuff. Maybe I'll show you one tomorrow. Um, so if nobody here ever tells you, you guys are the most awesome. So there you go. My mom was really happy too. She thought it was cool. And my department chair came to me this morning and says, Chris, you went live on Friday? And I said, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll get in trouble one day about it. We'll see. All right. Let's see where we were last class. All right. Is it time yet? Not yet, eh? One more minute. All right. Well, so remember last class we just started this DNA replication. I think we'll be able to get done today. Um, and I sort of started dry, describing sort of the, the basics of replication, you know, what are the pieces that we needed. And we started to talk about two activities that DNA polymerase can have. It's got that five prime to three prime polymerase activity. That's what's actually synthesizing the DNA, building from that three prime OH group, synthesizing in a five prime to three prime direction, while it's reading the DNA template from that single stranded DNA in the three prime to five prime direction. So that's one activity, five prime to three prime polymerase activity. And then I left you with this one right here, which is the three prime to five prime proofreading exonuclease activity. And this activity gets turned on when a base gets misincorporated. And that misincorporation, what I mean is by incorporating the base that doesn't form proper hydrogen bonding with the base on the template. When this happens, the polymerase recognizes that inability to form the hydrogen bonding, and it backs up, and with this exonuclease activity, will start to chew off bases until it reaches a region where proper normal hydrogen bonding is. So it's moving backwards, chewing away, removing bases, until it gets to a place where that's correct. So that's the three prime to five prime exonuclease activity. These two activities are found on an enzyme called DNA polymerase three. And DNA polymerase three is the enzyme in prokaryotes that does the majority of DNA synthesis. In a few minutes, I'm gonna to talk to you about another polymerase called DNA polymerase one. And this DNA polymerase has both of these activities five to three polymerase activity. It also has three to five exonuclease activity to fix any mistakes. And it's got one more additional activity, five prime to three prime exonuclease activity, which I'll show you in a few minutes, is involved in removing this RNA primer that gets added during replication to get things started. So I just wanted to orient you, because I haven't talked about the two different polymerases that are involved in replication yet. So let's get moving here. So first off, I want to start getting into a little bit more detail about replication. I want to go through the different types of replication that go through different organisms, if you want to call them that. The first one here is replication in bacterial genomes. I spoke to you already and told you that bacteria have um, one chromosome, essentially. It's double-stranded DNA, and it's in a circular form and it replicates by a process we call theta replication. Now in all the, everything I'm gonna be talking to you about, 
replication is initiated at a specific site in the genome. It's called the origin of replication, or the ORI, ORI. And one of the characteristic features of this origin of replication is that it contains sequences that are AT-rich, right? And remember when I was talking about nucleic acids and DNA, ATs form two hydrogen bonds between each other, and GCs form three. So a region that's very AT-rich is going to have less hydrogen bonding, and it's going to be easier to separate the DNA strands to form single-stranded DNA that can serve as a template for DNA replication. Now, in theta replication, we've got a bacterial genome, and bacteria only have one origin of replication. So because of the AT richness, there's some proteins and stuff. We'll talk about these in a few minutes that come into play here. But we get strand separation at that ORI region. That's going to uh, produce some single-stranded DNA that can act as a template. And then we're going to start to replicate the DNA in those regions of single-strandedness. As this replication occurs, it's going to start to open up the DNA in both directions. So going this way, it's going to open up. Going this way, it's going to open up. And again, we'll continue to replicate. This forms what we call a replication bubble right here. And this bubble is going to keep enlarging all the way down until the bubble meets itself. And then once this is done, we're going to have two double-stranded DNA circular genomes that we see in things like E. coli. So the fork right here, the replication fork, and the replication bubble are moving in both directions. We've got bi-directional replication. In things like bacteriophage, which are bacteria viruses, and plasmids, which are circular, small circular DNAs that are often found in bacteria, and incidentally, it's these small circular DNA plasmids that often confer antibiotic resistance to bacteria, and they're easily transferred between different types of bacteria. These also have a circular double-stranded DNA, both these bacteriophage and plasmids. It has a single origin of replication, but it replicates by a process called rolling circle replication. And essentially what happens here is we get a nick forming in one of the um, backbones of the DNA, so it's going to break one of the strands, and the DNA polymerase is going to come along and start to synthesize DNA using this inner strand as a template. And as it's doing so, it's going to lift off the second strand. And it'll continue to move along, replicating the DNA using this gray strand as a template until it gets all the way to the end. And as it's doing so, this strand is being displaced. Now, this strand needs to be replicated as well. So what's going to happen on this strand is the enzyme called primase. It's going to drop down some primers, and it's going to start to facilitate the replication of that strand as well. Okay? This is rolling circle replication. You don't need to know any really intimate details. Just recognize what, it, what it's about. Okay? But more importantly is what we see in eukaryotes, and this is linear replication. In eukaryotes, we have multiple chromosomes in our genome, and these are linear, double-stranded DNA molecules. The other difference between us and prokaryotes is that our genomes are much larger. So 
in order to replicate the large genomes of eukaryotes, we need multiple origins of replication scattered throughout the chromosomes. And there's usually around 100 or so in each of our chromosomes. You see these here. This is one chromosome, and we've got just four origins of replication uh, that you see here. And at each one of these sites, it's going to be AT-rich. We're going to get the opening up of the DNA to reveal single-stranded DNA to serve as a template. And then our replication fork and our replication bubble are going to move in both directions, replicating this way, opening up the DNA, and re continue replicating, opening up the DNA, continuing replicating, and eventually these replication bubbles are going to meet each other. The replication process will be completed, and we'll now have two copies of our chromosome. Okay? So a couple of little minor differences. The primary one being multiple origins of replication in eukaryotes, single origin of replication in prokaryotes. All right. Now this is really important to the, that we have all these origins of replication, as I mentioned, because of the size of our genomes. And if you look at, uh, for example, in things like bacteria, we just have one origin of replication. But the polymerase is really fast. 50,000 base pairs per minute. We've got different polymerases in eukaryotes, and I'll talk about those at the end of this lecture. Um, they move a lot slower replicating the DNA. So in things like yeast, which has a relatively small genome, there may be only 500 origins of replication. In mice, we might have 25,000 or so. Right? Now, if we only had one origin of replication, right, and we look at how fast we can replicate, it would take 830 hours to replicate a mammalian genome. So that's not really going to work out because we would barely, it would take years and years just to get through embryogenesis. All right, now let's look at this region where replication is starting off first because there's a couple of terminologies that are important for you to know. So here we are at our origin of replication. We've got a double-stranded DNA, and that DNA gets unwound to form two regions of single-stranded DNA. This is because of the AT-rich nature of that region of the genome. DNA polymerase requires a primer. It needs that first OH group to be present to start the replication process. So there's an enzyme called primase that will come in, and it's going to drop down an RNA primer. And this might be about 20 base pairs or so of RNA, and it's going to have a free 3'OH group on its 3' end. And that's where DNA polymerase can start the process of replication. Now, as this, and the same thing is going to happen on this top strand over here. As replication proceeds, we're going to unwind the DNA right here at our replication fork. So this will open up even more. Synthesis will continue to occur, going in this way and going this way, and we'll continue the process. Now, there are two different terminologies. This is lagging strand and leading strand. And I want to cover this because sometimes it confuses people. Leading strand synthesis is characterized by continuous synthesis and its synthesis towards the replication fork. So let's look at this strand right here. This is designated a leading strand. A primer has been dropped down over here to provide the 3 OH group and will begin to synthesize towards the fork. As this replication fork unwinds further, the polymerase can just continue to synthesize. 
and it'll unwind some more, and it'll continue to synthesize. So it's continuous synthesis towards the fork. The lagging strand behaves a little bit differently. All right? It's characterized by discontinuous synthesis, and it's synthesis away from the fork. All right? So it's synthesizing in this direction over here. Now, as this fork unwinds, we still need to replicate this portion. The only way that that can happen is if we drop down another primer right here to provide the free OH group, and then it can synthesize that bit. This will unwind some more. We'll drop down another primer. We'll synthesize that segment again, and we'll continue on that way. Each one of these segments is called the Okazaki fragment. I'll go into more detail with that in a few minutes here. But it's discontinuous synthesis. Now, these two terms are only with respect to a single origin of replication. Because if I follow this lagging strand all the way down over to this fork, it's now the leading strand, right? Because it's synthesizing towards the fork. And as this fork unwinds, it will just continuously synthesize. And this one here, that's the lagging strand. If I move, follow it all the way down to here, it becomes a leading strand. So that's where it gets a little bit confusing for some people. Okay, so keep that in mind. All right, now let's get into the real details here. So I've sort of given you the bare basics of it. So let's look at, we're going to look at the initiation of replication in prokaryotes. And all of these proteins here and enzymes are necessary to initiate and continue the process of DNA synthesis. So the first one here is called the initiator protein or DNA A. It's going to bind to our origin of replication site, that AT-rich region, and it's going to be the enzyme or the protein that first breaks the hydrogen bonding to form that initial segment of single-stranded DNA that can serve as a template. Then we have two other proteins and enzymes here. We've got a helicase inhibitor we call DNA-C, and we have an enzyme called DNA helicase. DNA helicase is the enzyme that continues to unwind the DNA, making single-stranded DNA from double-stranded, after the initiator protein. So the initiator protein unwinds first, and then helicase will continue to unwind the DNA for the rest of the replication process. The helicase is delivered to the replication bubble by this inhibitor protein. It keeps this helicase inactive while it's floating around in the cytoplasm and while we're not replicating DNA. And when it delivers it to the origin of replication, it disconnects and the helicase becomes active. This prevents the helicase from attaching onto the DNA and unwinding it when it's not supposed to, not, you know, when it's not in S phase of the cell cycle. All right? And then we have primase, DNA primase, this is an RNA polymerase because it's going to synthesize a very small segment of RNA that's going to attach onto a single-stranded template, and that's going to provide the source of the first OH group that DNA polymerase needs to start synthesis. And then we've got our two polymerases. The one I've been kind of talking about up until now is DNA polymerase 3. It does the majority of DNA synthesis by its 5' to 3' polymerase activity, 
and it's going to proofread using its 3 prime to 5 prime exonuclease activity. The other polymerase is DNA polymerase 1. Its job is to remove all the primers particularly on the lagging strand, because remember the lagging strand is going to have a lot of these primers drop down every time the replication fork opens up. We've got to remove that RNA segment and replace it with DNA. The activity of DNA polymerase 1 that does removes the primer is 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease activity. So it starts chewing the RNA primer on the 5' prime end, and then behind it, it's using its polymerase activity to extend the DNA that was previously there. That's 5' prime to 3' prime synthesis or polymerase activity. And it's got a proofread so that when it replaces that primer with DNA, it doesn't make a mistake. So DNA polymerase 1 has three activities. 5 to 3 polymerase, 3 to 5 exonuclease proofreading, and 5 to 3 exonuclease to remove the primer. Okay. You'll see this coming along in a few minutes. And then lastly, we've got another protein called single-stranded binding protein. Remember when I talked to you about the properties of DNA, right? We can have en In the cell, we have enzymes that separate the strands to convert double-stranded DNA into single-stranded DNA. But remember, DNA has its single-stranded DNA can re-anneal to itself, right? So what these single-stranded binding proteins do is once the DNA gets opened up to form a template, it coats the single-stranded DNA so that it doesn't re-anneal right away before replication can occur. And it's got another feature I'll show you in a few minutes. All right. So let's get into it then now that you know all the players. So here's our circular prokaryotic genome. It's got its single origin of replication. Here's the se one of the sequences that's found at the origin of replication right here. It's a repeated sequence 13 times. And you can see that that's very AT-rich. So in other words, it's going to be easy to separate the DNA strands there because of the weak hydrogen bonding in that region of the genome. We also have some binding sites for the initiator protein, the DNA A protein. And it's the DNA A protein that's going to break those hydrogen bonds initially at the origin of replication, making our single-stranded template. Everybody following me so far? Yeah? Uh, yep. It synthesizes 5 to 3. That's the polymerase activity. And the 3 to 5 exonuclease is the proofreading. Okay, so this is how it happens. So the initiator proteins bind to the origin of replication. It's going to break the hydrogen bonds at the origin of replication, making single-stranded DNA that we could use as a template. The helicase inhibitor protein delivers DNA helicase now to the replication forks that have formed by the initial breaking of those hydrogen bonds. And DNA helicase is going to be the enzyme that continues to unwind the DNA for the rest of DNA replication. When that single-stranded DNA is formed, single-stranded binding proteins are going to attach onto that template, preventing it from snapping back together and re-annealing and allowing the DNA replication process to occur. So these single-stranded binding proteins are going to prevent the DNA, the double-stranded DNA, from re-annealing 
It also does one other thing that's really important. Remember when I talked to you about tRNAs, right? I said because of the internal complementarity in the sequence, it formed those stem loop structures, right? The same thing can happen with DNA. Sometimes throughout the genome, there's regions that are, have internal complementarity. And when we separate DNA strands, there's the potential for them to form stem loops. Now, if DNA polymerase was synthesizing on something that looked like this, it would synthesize along. And what it would do, actually, is it skips over that stem loop. What would that cause? It's a deletion, right? It would cause a deletion. We would miss that part of the genome during DNA replication. And, of course, that could cause all kinds of problems. So single-stranded DNA uh, binding protein all pr also prevents the stem loop formation in double-stranded DNA during replication. All right. So let's sort of get where we're... Look at what we're doing now. So here's, a, again, a summary. We've got our origin of replication... And our initiator proteins, DNAA, are going to bind to that origin of replication. It's going to break some hydrogen bonding, forming single-stranded DNA. And we've got our inhibitor protein, DNA-C protein, delivering DNA helicase, which is DNA-B protein, to these replication forks. The DNA helicase will continue to unwind the DNA even further, and it will continue throughout the process of replication. Primase is going to come now, and it's going to drop down at the replication fork an RNA primer, a short 20 base pairs or so RNA segment onto our template to provide that free 3'OH group that DNA polymerase can use to now initiate synthesis. These two players, DNA primase and the helicase, form what we call the primosome. And they tend to hang out at the replication fork. So there'd be a DNA primase and a helicase here, and there's going to be a DNA primase and a helicase over here too. All right. Now, when this DNA is opened up at the replication fork, we've got our leading strand... That's going to be synthesized continuously. DNA polymerase will, 3 will be hanging out here. And as this opens up, it'll just continue to synthesize more towards the fork. The more challenging uh, strand here is our lagging strand because it's um, moving away from the fork. So it's synthesizing 5 to 3 away from the fork. As we open up this fork we need to synthesize a segment here, and we have to keep dropping down a primer. Every time this opens up, a new primer is dropped down, and we'll synthesize another segment. So here, a primer was dropped down. We got a synthesis of a segment. Here, a primer was dropped down. We got another segment synthesized. We opened it up some more, dropped down another primer, and synthesized another segment. This is lagging strand synthesis. And each one of these segments is called an Okazaki fragment. So on the lagging strand, what we're going to have is a DNA segment, RNA primer, DNA segment, RNA primer. And we have ultimately have to remove those RNA primers and join those DNA segments together. And this is where DNA polymerase 1 comes in.
All right. So here's our lagging strand again. Here's our template in yellow. Here's our lagging strand synthesis. We dropped down a primer by primase, and we got an Okazaki synthesized. We opened up the DNA some more, dropped down a primer, and we synthesize a second segment. Now, what we've got to do is we've got to remove the primers, because they're RNA, and we've got to join the two Okazakis together. Now, in eukaryotes, or prokaryotes, this is done by DNA polymerase 1, because it has that additional activity, 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease activity. And it's going to use that 5' prime to 3' prime exonuclease activity to eat away at that RNA primer and remove it. Mm -hmm. I'll sh it's the one, because it has five to three polymerase activity. Yeah, it's got all three activities. Um, before I go on here, in eukaryotes, we've got some different players. We've got RNAs H, which is an enzyme that degrades RNA. That's going to be responsible for removing the primer. And we've got another protein called FEN1 that's involved in this primer removal in eukaryotes. All right, so let's look at how this goes. So here we go. We've got to first remove that RNA primer. And DNA polymerase 1 has 5 to 3 exonuclease activity. So it's going to start to chew away at this primer on the 5' prime end, which is right here, chewing away until it gets to the DNA. Now, as it's chewing away, there's a free OH group right here on the 3' prime end of this DNA. It's going to use its 5' to 3' polymerase activity to extend this Okazaki fragment. That's the question you just asked, right? Yeah. So we've now used 5' to 3' polymerase activity of DNA polymerase 1 to extend this Okazaki right here and fill in the gap where our RNA used to be. Now we've got this gap. Now the problem is, is that we've got a three O eight three whoops, we've got a three prime OH right here, but this nucleotide on this Okazaki only has a single phosphate. Right? Because it was already utilized in synthesis. We had to cleave off pyrophosphate, right? So it's only got a single phosphate, and the polymerase can't use that as a substrate to make a phosphodiester bond between those two Okazakis. So this is where the DNA ligase comes in that I told you about before. Now this is where we are. Here's one Okazaki fragment. Here's another. Here's our 3' OH group. That's good. But this base, this nucleotide, only has a single phosphate. So there's no energy source. DNA ligase will come in. It's going to utilize ATP as its energy source and form the phosphodiester bond between those two Okazakis. And now we've got a continuous piece of DNA. Everybody okay? Sure. So, so at this point, right, so DNA polymerase 1 has come in. It's used its 5 to 3 exonuclease activity to remove the primer. And as it was doing so, it was synthesizing from the OH on this Okazaki to fill in that space where the RNA used to be. Now, when it reaches the next Okazaki, we're stuck. The polymerase can't make a phosphodiester bond there 
because the nucleotide only has a single phosphate because it's already participated in the polymerase reaction. So in order to join these two Okazaki segments together, we need DNA ligase that can use ATP as an energy source to make a phosphodiester bond between a nucleoside monophosphate and this 3'OH group. Hope that helps you. All right. Mm? It does. It has to have proofreading, right? Because if it didn't have proofreading, when it's replacing the pr RNA primer with DNA, it can make a mistake, right? They both have the proofreading, yeah. One and three have proofreading. So this is how it all, let's put this all together now. Here's our replication fork. Helicase is hanging at the fork, unwinding the DNA as replication occurs. So it's going to keep unwinding this double-stranded DNA to reveal more template. There we go. We've got our primase coming in, dropping down an RNA primer, and DNA polymerase 3 will start to synthesize. This is our leading strand. It's going towards the fork, and as helicase keeps, continues unwinding, synthesis will be continuous. On the lagging strand over here, we need to have primase coming in, dropping down a primer, We'll get an Okazaki synthesized. The DNA will unwind some more. Li uh, primase will drop down another primer. Polymerase 3 will make another Okazaki. Unwind some more. Drop down another primer. Polymerase 3 will synthesize another Okazaki. Now DNA polymerase 1 comes in. Going to remove that RNA primer right down here. And it's going to replace that with DNA. So now we have two Okazakis together. And here comes our ligase. Ligase is going to seal that nick up and join those two Okazakis. All right. So you can kind of take a look at that later on. Now, there's another player involved here I haven't told you about. And this is clamp protein. And this comes into play with the lagging strand synthesis. And the problem is, is how does the polymerase know when to stop? Okay? Because if we're on our lagging strand, right, we've got our DNA polymerase, it's, there's a primer's been dropped down by primase, it's going to start to synthesize, and eventually it's going to hit the previously made Okazaki. It needs to know when to stop. Because what can happen is I can just start pushing off this strand and it'll just keep synthesizing. That'll happen in the laboratory. It knows when to stop because of a protein called clamp protein. DNA polymerase 3 has what is called low processivity by itself, which means that it can only synthesize very short segments of DNA. It, can't, it doesn't hold on very well by itself to the DNA template, the single-stranded DNA. It needs clamp protein to facilitate this binding. So what clamp protein does is when we're synthesizing an Okazaki and the polymerase and clamp protein hit the previously made Okazaki, it recognizes that as double-stranded and the clamp protein disengages. 
that weakens the interaction between DNA polymerase and the template, and then DNA polymerase disengages as well. All right. So that's how the polymerase knows when to stop when it hits an uh, already made Okazaki. Yeah. No, the clamp, the clamp is associated with the polymerase 3. Yeah. And then when the, when the polymerase 3 clamp protein complex hits the Okazaki that's already made, they disengage. Mm-hmm. How long are they? Oh, if I remember correctly, I think they're somewhere around the, between 100 and 200 base pairs. Yeah. All right, I've just put this up here that you guys can play with this uh, slide here. But, you know, one of the things that we, you know, that sort of goes, goes out in questions in various forms or another is function, right? What does this enzyme do? What does this protein do? So you can leave this, you know, use this slide as a bit of a study slide. Remove all the words, black them out, and then come back a few weeks later or whatever before the exam and label this replication fork, put some functions in there, and try to predict what's going to happen if one of the enzymes or proteins isn't working properly, all right, based on your knowledge of what they do normally. All right, so I think we've got all this, right? Yeah. Just going to throw this back at you. Remember uh, when I was talking about packaging and supercoiling, that when enzymes are opening up double-stranded DNA and making single-stranded template, and this occurs both during replication and transcription, as that protein is moving forward, pushing through the DNA and unwinding it, we get a buildup of positive supercoils, right? And we need to fix this if we want DNA replication to proceed. So just to bring this back into your memory, it's the topoisomerases and in prokaryotes gyrase that are involved in relieving that positive supercoiling that occurs ahead of, in this case, the DNA polymerase during replication. And because you guys are med students, don't forget about ciprofloxacin, right? This is the one that inhibits DNA gyrase, the enzyme that corrects the positive supercoiling during DNA, that's generated during DNA replication and transcription. So if you treat the bacteria with ciprofloxacin, positive supercoil is going to be building up to the point where the DNA can be no longer unwound in the, in, in the, by helicase in the case of replication. Replication stops, and that's the end of that bacteria. Um, we use this thing for like respiratory tract infections, urinary tract, and even anthrax. All right. How are we doing so far? Doing good? All right. Last little thing I want to tell you about before I get into some of the comparisons between prokaryotes and DNA, uh, eukaryotes in more detail. And this is something that's unique to eukaryotes. Um, and it's because we have linear chromosomes. And this is what happens at the very ends of our chromosomes during replication in a region that we call the telomere. And there's a special problem when we rec replicate linear um, chromosomes. And this is how it looks like. So here's our double-stranded DNA. This is one chromosome. 
We separate the two parental strands, those are the ones in blue, right? A primer gets dropped down on the three prime end, and we start to get synthesis five to three to replicate that strand. Same thing happens on the other one, other parental strand, primer gets dropped down, and we synthesize in the five to three to replicate. Now here's the problem. When we remove the primer, we're left with this gap that needs to be filled. And we can't fill that gap because there's no free OH group there. Now, some people are thinking in their minds, well, why don't we just drop a primer right there, right? And then have polymerase come in and fill in that gap. And we could do that, but that primer still has to get removed, right? So right here, we're going to have a little gap. There's no way to get rid of that problem. And if we don't fix this, what's going to happen is every time we replicate our genomes, the chromosome is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And this actually happens to us. As we get older, our chromosomes get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. This is one of the theories of aging, the telomere theory of aging, it's called. So we've got to fix this, right? And in order to fix this, we utilize an enzyme called telomerase. Telomerase. So this is how it works. All right, so here's our problem, right? We've got this gap that's there as, as a result of removing our RNA primer. And we need to fill in this gap with DNA because that's important DNA of our chromosomes. Now, as I pointed out, we could, we could have easily dropped a primer right here, right? Right there. And then we could, polymerase could come in and synthesize that bit and then we'd ligate them together. But we'd still have a gap right there, right? What we need is a free OH group over here somewhere, right? So this is what telomerase does. Telomerase is an interesting enzyme. It has, its activity is reverse transcriptase activity. We talked about, a little bit about this with viral replication, right? Reverse transcriptase enzyme uses an RNA template to synthesize DNA. And within the telomerase enzyme itself, it holds a short RNA segment. Okay. Now, one of the features of, of the ends of our DNA, the telomeres, is that the DNA sequence is repeated over and over and over again. And you can see that right here. TT, GGGG, GGGG, TT, TT, GG, G, TT. Right? Over and over and over again. Potentially hundreds of thousands of times. Hundreds or thousands of times. All right? So it's a repetitive sequence. It's disposable DNA. It doesn't code for anything. Okay? And this is on the end of all of our chromosomes. And the RNA that's held with t within telomerase is complementary to that telomeric sequence. So it's got the CCCCAA right? associated with it. So when telomerase comes along here, it can bind to this three prime overhang, we call it, by complementary base pairing. And it binds kind of in an overlapping fashion. So what do we have here now? We've got a three prime end from our overhang. There's gonna be a three prime OH group there. We've got an RNA template now, 
and the reverse transcriptase activity of telomerase will be able to use this RNA that's now bound to the DNA as a template to extend this overhang. Okay, so it binds here, uses reverse transcriptase to make that overhang longer. It then binds again, extends that overhang even further, binds again, extends the overhang further. I'll show you a little video in a second about that. So now we've taken this overhang and made it much longer. This red bit is extra DNA. It's dispensable. But what it does provide is a site for a primer to bind to. So primase can come down in here. We drop it down on this part. We don't care about this part anymore. It just provides a site for the primer. And then the polymerase can come and now synthesize that segment. We haven't shown the primer in this diagram. And then ligase will join the two segments together. Okay. Let me show you this video and see if I can get it to work. Now, some people are going to be quite astute. Let me see if I can start it again. Well, let's, can I start it again? Probably not. Let's wait till it finishes, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go from the start. Hmm. Hopefully, I have enough time to get this. Some people that are very astute with replication might be able to pick up an error here. Don't put up your hand. We'll talk about it later. Okay, so I think we're starting up here now. All right, so here we go. Double-stranded DNA. We've separated it into single-stranded templates. We got a primer drop down to provide that 3'OH group, and the polymerase is going to go along and synthesize our new daughter strand. So that's all good. Now we're going to look at the ends of our chromosomes here that have just been replicated. And we've got this gap now. So it'll leave be even bigger once that primer gets removed. And we've got to fix that. Uh-oh, there we go. Here comes telomerase. So here's our overhang. There's a repeated telomeric sequence. Telomerase, with its, that holds its RNA molecule, is going to bind in an overlapping fashion to that 3' overhang. And now its telomerase activity will use the RNA as a template to extend that overhang, building, synthesizing 5 to 3. So now we've got a, an extended overhang now. This is dispendable DNA. It'll do this over and over again, extending that much longer and longer. And now all we have to have is a RNA primer bound to that extra material, extra overhang we put, and then the polymerase will come in and fill in that part that's important. Okay. You can find this on YouTube and stuff. You can download it or just Google telomerase animation and you'll be able to see this at the comfort of your own home. Everybody okay? It's using the internal RNA to extend the overhang, and then the normal RNAs that add the primer, or the normal enzymes that add the primer come in afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
It's RNA. It's using reverse transcriptase activity. It's holding an RNA using the RNA as a template to synthesize DNA. Oh, really? That's probably another error. Let me check. Did it really? No way. Oh, wow. Well, that's two errors in this video. I didn't make it, thank goodness. That's the second error. I never noticed that in many years of using this. Is there... Mm. Well, it's, what happens is it extends that telomeric sequence, sometimes very large, right? But we don't care about it. it, it the, the overhang that, that we don't care about just gets degraded off. The end gets polished. Yeah. This, the length of these telomeres tend to expand and contract, expand and contract over time. But in general, they get shorter as we get older. Yeah. All right. Okay, so let's get some comparisons done uh, between prokaryotes and eukaryotes, right? So remember, we've got origins of replication. Prokaryotes only have one. Eukaryotes have multiple origins of replication. You're going to see in a few minutes, I'll show you the polymerases that eukaryotes use. They are different than the DNA polymerase 1 and the DNA polymerase 3 that prokaryotes use. Removal of the primers is different. In prokaryotes, it's DNA's, uh, DNA polymerase 1 that does this. In eukaryotes, it's RNA's H enzyme and FEN1 protein. And um, in eukaryotes, this replication is typically really isolated to S phase. In things like prokaryotes, this S phase, G phases tend to be, a l the, the boundary tends to be a little bit obscure. All right, so if we've got this, Remember our polymerases, DNA polymerase 1 is going to remove the RNA primer and replace it with DNA. Polymerase 3 is the one that does most of the synthesis, okay, except for that segment where the RNA primer is. In eukaryotes, a little bit different here. We've got some different polymerases. Make sure you're aware of these. Here's polymerase alpha. And this alpha, polymerase alpha, is the one that synthesizes the primer. It's the one that synthesizes the primer. So this would be equivalent to primase in prokaryotes, right? It's got low processivity, so it only synthesizes a very short segment. And it doesn't have any exonuclease activity. We don't need to proofread the RNA primer because we're going to get rid of it later anyways, right? So it doesn't need that exonuclease activity. Um, polymerase gamma, no, delta, delta. This is the one that does most of the DNA synthesis. So this is equivalent to DNA polymerase 3 in pro uh, prokaryotes. It's got a pretty high processivity, so it can synthesize long stretches and it's got the 3' prime to 5' prime proofreading activity. We've got some other uh, polymerases, beta and gamma, and these are involved in things like DNA replication and replicating the mitochondrial genome, respectively. All right. Last little bit, the drugs here. These are anti-cancer drugs, and these are involved in disrupting um, 
replication in eukaryotic cells. We have one here called camptothecin. This inhibits topoisomerase 1. Okay, remember that's the topoisomerase that makes one nick, breaks one of the backbones of the double-stranded DNA. All right, so we're going to inhibit that activity and prevent replication. And this will typically cause DNA to start breaking up. And then we have a topicide here. This is one that inhibits topoisomerase 2, the enzyme that breaks both backbones of the DNA. All right? So as a result of use, utilizing these, we're going to get building up of supercoiling within our eukaryotic cells, the cancer cells, and and the replication of those cancer cells. Now, of course, these are also going to affect our cells too, right? Yeah. But remember, most cells in our body aren't replicating, right? Cancer cells are highly replicative. That's why they're called cancer. Most of our cells in our body are stuck in G1 doing their normal cellular functions, right? There are places where cells replicate quite a bit, like our hair follicles and our hair follicles, right? That's why when you take chemotherapy for cancer, your hair falls out because the stem cells in our hair follicles are one of those cells that are replicating quite quickly. All right. Um, here's another drug. This is acti actinomycin D. Um, it has been utilized far, far in the past as an antibiotic, but it wasn't a very good antibiotic, and now it's used... Um, to look, uh, treat some leukemias. Um, and this is a drug that acts as an interchelating dr uh, drug. And what that means is it inserts itself in between the bases in the DNA. And in doing so, it prevents the unwinding of the DNA or the formation of single-stranded template. So this actinomycin D, in addition to affecting DNA replication and could be used as an anti-cancer drug, is also going to inhibit transcription as well because need to unwind the DNA during transcription. All right, let's see if we can do a clicker here for you. This is going to test your short-term memory. Very short-term memory. <laughs> All right, should we check it? Are we there yet? There's about 500, I think, of you, right? All right, let's take a look. All right, yes, most of you guys, 62% only, though, pick telomerase. Telomerase has that RNA molecule associated with it. It uses reverse transcriptase activity to synthesize DNA using an RNA as a template, just like retroviruses. DNA polymerase 1 
uses DNA to synthesize as a template to synthesize more DNA. Polymerase 3, DNA template, synthesizing DNA. Primase, that's going to take a DNA template to make RNA and RNA polymerase DNA template to make RNA. I saw a hand to go up, but it went down. I think, yep. Prokaryotes do not have telomeres. Why? They're circular genomes. They don't have linear genomes. Pardon me? Nope. Oh, which... Oh, this is just a red herring. This is a distractor. You know this, right? There's distractors in questions. Yeah. Right? Because I couldn't use any of these answers if I didn't put both of those, right? Yeah. You've got to get used to that. You think that's bad. Wait till you see some of the other ones that have distractors. Yeah. Previous question? Later. <laughs> Let's do this one first. All right, we're almost there. All right, should we check it? Then we'll go back and... S All right, let's take a look. Ooh, all over the place. So what's happening here? We've got a strain of bacteria whose mutation rate is very, very high. Now, the correct answer is D, 3 to 5 exonuclease. That's the proofreading activity. When a mistake occurs during DNA replication, it's the 3 to 5 exonuclease activity that fixes that mistake. All right? Um, so if that's not there, the rate of mutation is going to be very, very high. Huh. Yeah. Say that again. Well, I'm a science teacher, not a... Uh, <laughs> he goes, but anyway, say that again. What's the question? Oh, which of the following? Which if the following? Yeah. Did that affect your answer, ability to answer the question? <laughs> okay, there's somebody back there. You had a question? 
Yeah, let's just get this question cleared up so Dr. Kopelman can come. Yeah, the check mark was on D. Wasn't it? It was on B? Oh, that's my secretary's fault. Okay, I'll fix that. It's telomerase. The answer is telomerase. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Okay, guys, have a good day. Try to have some fun.